Thank you so much, Sam, for reading God's Word, and thank you for the update from the bridge. And I know it's encouraging to many to hear how things are going there during this difficult time, but also how the ministry continues on. And it's also great, Sam, to um, hear how things are going well for you. And so just bless you in your role and your ministry and your leadership at the bridge, and know that we as Forest Grove Community Church are so behind that ministry. Um, my name is Pastor Don, and I'm one of the pastors here at Attridge at Forest Grove Community Church, and it's my privilege to kick off our 2021 series called Kingdom Culture. Now, in a moment, I'm going to talk a little bit more about kingdom, but I want to start first talking about culture. And my first question for all of us is, what kind of culture do we want? When we think of our nation, when we think of the church, what kind of culture do we want? Is Canadian culture really unique? I wondered this last week if Canadian culture is so wrapped up in whether the World Juniors win uh, the gold medal or whether we are just so defined by not being American that that's our biggest key in terms of our culture. But either way, is our Canadian culture unique? But what's maybe more important during this season is how has this almost a year now of pandemic impacted or affected our culture? This last week, I received an email from Jeremy Martini, who is the president of Horizon College. And if you haven't been by the church building lately, there are new neighbors, and that building is going up like gangbusters. I noticed that the library is already in, and there's books. I'm excited about that. But you might want to drive by and just see the progress there. Well, anyway, back to Jeremy. He wrote an email, and in there, he quoted from or referred to the book The Millennial Mosaic and was commenting from that book that almost half of millennials believe that the growth of atheism is good for Canada and prefer life without God or congregation. Now, just a reminder, millennials are those that are kind of from their mid-20s through their 30s. It's actually Gen Z that is now the new younger generation. So millennials are that key generation of 20s and 30-year-olds that are so key in our culture. And so I know when we hear this, we can be concerned and saddened in some ways. And yet I also want to share with you just a few stats from World Vision doing a survey on young Canadians. Some of this is pretty interesting. And again, this survey was about how they feel our culture is being impacted by the pandemic. And, and first of all, it says more than half of young Canadians, 51%, worry that their jobs could disappear. 31% of young Canadians feel their mental health has been affected more than others, highest in any age group. This one's really high. 66% of young Canadians worry about the impact of the pandemic on social cohesion in Canada, the most of any age group. 64% of young Canadians think about the impact of the pandemic on people in poor countries, again, the highest of any generation. And yet 32% of young Canadians feel that they have more hope for the future than others. Again, the highest of any age group. So again, I know some of us from older generations are tempted at times to, to throw the millennials and Gen Z under the bus, just like they are with their great boomer memes. Um, yeah, those are great. Anyway, um, before we do that, though, I just want to say these two generations are the first two generations that have truly grown up in a post Christian culture of Canada. 
And isn't it interesting that um, most of the, that the highest percentage of millennials are caring about our world and care about social cohesion in Canada and actually have more hope for the future? So there's, a, there's mixed feelings in terms of what's happening in our Canadian culture and what's happening through the generations. Now back to my question, what kind of culture do you want? Now maybe some of you from my generations and older, maybe some of you are longing for the good old days, the days when Christianity was the dominant um, voice in our culture. There are some good memories of that in some ways, yet may I remind you that history has shown us that when the church mixes with power and politics, things don't usually go well. So what really then are we hoping for? Can I suggest and can I encourage us as a congregation as we go through this series called Kingdom Culture where we will study the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the very words of Jesus where he declared the kingdom. Can I encourage us to long for a culture that is defined by the kingdom of heaven, that is defined by what Jesus modeled and what Jesus has taught. And that's what this series will be all about discovering this kingdom culture and saying, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth, here now on earth as it is in heaven. Could that be our unified longing from all the generations? So what is this mystery that Matthew will state 33 times? Kingdom of heaven. What is this? Well, I want to start with a, a quote from from Sky Gathani, he wrote a book called, What If Jesus Was Serious? Consider this quote. The kingdom of heaven is not the church, is not where God's people go after death. It is the realm where God rules and evil is powerless. Jesus announced that his kingdom was now at hand, meaning it is within our reach. The kingdom of, of the heavens has broken into our world and a new way of life is now possible. Isn't that incredible hope of what Jesus came to do in announcing the kingdom? Now, we're going to jump in this week at Matthew chapter 3, so we'll turn there in a moment. But just before we get to Matthew chapter 3, I just want to do a quick review of chapter 1 and 2 that basically Pastor Kevin and Pastor Bruce covered during our Christmas season. Now, in Matthew um, chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew starts out giving basically an overview of why he wrote this gospel, why he wrote this book. And he starts by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So then the next verses is this long genealogy, which is basically a list of names that shows the generations all the way up to Jesus. And we see from what Matthew says right at the beginning that through this genealogy, he wanted to show or authenticate Jesus' claims, that Jesus truly was this promised Messiah that the people have been waiting hundreds of years for. He wants to authenticate that Jesus really was the Son of God. And by saying that he was the Son of David, he was, he was authenticating that he came from the right royal line. And by saying that he was the son of Abraham, he's authenticating that he definitely came from the right Jewish culture. So as we look at chapter 1 and we see the genealogy, Matthew's purpose was to bring about the legal claim to kingship. 
And if you're one who watches a lot of shows about royal lineage and royal lines, you'll know that the right royal lineage is so important for kings to rule. And this genealogy proved that through that line that Jesus had legal claim from the line of David and also that ethnic claim through Abraham. Then further in chapter 1, Matthew then tells the virgin birth story. And basically, he wants to include that very clearly because he wanted to dispel the rumor that was amongst many of the Jews that Jesus was illegitimate, that he was not truly the son of Joseph. But in telling that story carefully of Jesus' virgin birth, connecting it to how the prophets of old prophesied that, he wanted to prove the legitimacy and the deity claim of Jesus, that if, that if he was of the Holy Spirit, that he truly was the Son of God. So then we turn to chapter 2. It's the account of the wise men. And these wise men are somewhat mysterious. These are astrologers and scholars from the, from the East. And there's so much to tell about that, but basically what Matthew is wanting, again, to say to the skeptics is that even the Gentile scholars, and these wise men from the East, they were regarded as the premier scholars of the then-known world. And they were searching for this new king and giving him legitimacy. So that's part of why, why he wants to tell the wise men account. And then the last half of chapter 2 is about how Joseph and Mary take Jesus and they escape to Egypt to avoid the persecution from the king of that day, Herod. Because when that king heard of these wise men who thought that there was a new royal line, they actually killed a bunch of the children. And Jesus was saved because Joseph and Mary, from an angel's message, were able to escape to Egypt. But Matthew, again, includes that story because it's so key to the history of Israel. It basically gives the prophetic and the historical claim that Jesus is the Messiah. Because Jewish history was they were a small family that went to Egypt for protection and then left hundreds of years later as a nation as God rescued them. And so showing that Jesus, the Messiah, went to Egypt for protection and then came back to the land as their, as their protector and as their proclaimer and as their salvation, that again fulfilled this prophetic and historical claim. So those two chapters lay the foundation of why Matthew wrote and how he wanted to authenticate that this Jesus, this Messiah we're going to talk about is the real deal. He has the right to declare a new kingdom. So before the pages turn to Jesus as the main character of the book, we have one more key character to cover today, and that's where it takes us now to Matthew chapter 3. And that person is, is John the Baptist. So, John the Baptist, now Matthew assumes that his readers, mainly Jewish readers at that time, knew who John the Baptist was. But John the Baptist was a prophet. His story is told in the Gospel of Luke, if you want to read a bit more of the background story of how he was born. But John was called to be the one that would proclaim the coming of Messiah. He was like the preparer. And so that's who this John was. So let's go now to Matthew chapter 3 and let's read the first six verses. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, 
and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. In the Jordan River. So John was this wild man, this prophet out in the wilderness who dressed weird, sounded weird, and had a really harsh message. But again, John was called to be a forerunner, to be a preparer. So right away, Matthew quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and says of him that he is a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. You see, in ancient times when kings would travel, there would be servants that would go ahead and they would literally remove boulders and obstacles and and smooth the way and, and prepare the roads in front of the king so that the king had nothing holding him back. So that was the picture here, that John was coming to prepare the way for the king. So that was his forerunner role. When you get to verse 4 and you see his weird clothes and his weird diet, this for us seems really strange, but the reader of Matthew would have been like, oh, so that's who this John is. He's a prophet, like the Old Testament prophets. We're supposed to think Elijah. So that was the picture they had. The, this was basically the picture of the typical prophet in terms of what they wore and how they lived and and that, that's who this John was. Now, when John, in, in chapter 2, um, gave his, his main sermon, which was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So John was declaring, This kingdom, this Messiah that we're all longing for, that those people have been longing for for hundreds of years, this is at hand. This is not a future hope anymore but this is soon to become a new reality. So the reason that so many crowds came to hear John was, again, for generations, people had been longing for Messiah. They'd been longing for rescue. They'd been longing for vindication. The Jewish people had been under the rule of of foreign nations for hundreds of years, and now, now the Romans were just a crushing force, and they wanted freedom. They wanted liberty. They wanted vengeance. They wanted their nation back. They wanted their pride back. They wanted everything back. They wanted Messiah to come and rescue them and send up the kingdom and be their savior and be the king. So a message that this was coming soon, that this was at hand, this was good and amazing news that everyone really wanted to hear. Consider this quote from scholar, author Scott McKnight. He says this, Kingdom for John is a community ruled by a king, the Messiah. Kingdom isn't just a state of affairs like justice and peace and love and holiness. Kingdom is a community. The king is Jesus. The citizens are those who follow Jesus. And the land is the place where they will embody the kingdom of God. So John, in his role as this forerunner, this message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, John wanted to prepare the people for a new culture, for a new kingdom culture that was about to be revealed. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll re-word, I'll reread verses 1 and 2, but then we'll, we'll go down to verse 7. So it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. And now down to verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So what a hopeful and now harsh word from John the Baptist as he looks at the crowd that is coming to him. So John starts again with repent. What does repent mean? Now, in here, he does say to them, repent of your sin. So there is a part about them cleansing the sin and cleansing their hearts. But the repentance that John is talking about is so much more than confession. The true meaning of repentance is really a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of the way we live. In fact, in the message, Peterson translates this verse this way, change your life, God's kingdom is here. Really what John was getting at was, all of you coming to me and hearing this message, you need to lay down your idea, your preconceptions, your hopes and dreams and desires for the kingdom and for Messiah. You need to lay those down and be ready for what's really coming. That's why his words seem to be so harsh when he gives his warning. That's why he, sig- he, he singles out these Pharisees and Sadducees which are political names for the religious ruling class. Now, it's interesting that Matthew puts the Pharisees and the Sadducees together because it's kind of like saying, you Democrats and Republicans, or you liberals and conservatives. It's like these were the most opposing political religious views. They normally couldn't stand each other, and yet here they were, these Pharisees and Sadducees, at a place where they wanted to hear John's message because they too wanted Messiah to come, wanted kingdom to come. But you see, these these religious leaders represented even more than the rest of the people, people who had full expectation and full set views of what they thought the kingdom would be like, what they thought the kingdom would look like, who they thought the Messiah would be. And John is basically saying to them, you bandwagon jumpers, You people that think that you're going to get what you want, what your preconceived ideas are, you don't know anything. You need to repent and lay that all down and be prepared for the true kingdom that's going to come through Messiah. So even when Matthew or or John uses these harsh words of, of the threshing floor and separating the wheat from the shaft, we can misunderstand that as meaning people. That's not what he's talking about here. This, this threshing floor is a, is a, was a well-known symbol of, of how they understood what he was talking about here, which represents the separation of truth from religiosity. Again, what John was saying, repent of your preconceived ideas of what you think this king and kingdom is going to be like, and that the truth of your religiosity and your own selfish desires, that's what's going to be winnowed out. That's, what's all, that's what is religiosity and not the truth of what this kingdom will be. You see, the kingdom that was coming, and even John didn't fully understand. We find out later that John himself started to have doubts because Jesus 
didn't look or act or declare a kingdom that he recognized and thought it would be. Jesus announced a kingdom that surprised everybody. Our idea, their idea of kingdom, needed to be overturned and reshaped. Our hopes and dreams and desires of what we would like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven to look like in our day, needs to be overturned and reshaped. Consider this quote now from Donald Craybill, who wrote The Upside Down Kingdom. He said this, The kingdom is full of surprises. Things are reversed. Paradox, irony, and surprise permeate the teachings of Jesus. They flip our expectations upside down. The least are the greatest. The immoral receive forgiveness and blessing. Adults become like children. The religious miss the heavenly banquet. The pious receive curses, shattering our assumptions. The kingdom that Jesus announced, and in coming weeks, when Jesus becomes the main character, when his call to kingdom, his expression, his living of kingdom comes, it's going to be full of surprises. So how do we respond? I encourage us today to respond to John's message to repent and to embrace his kind of humility to have a posture of humility and a posture of repentance that says, you know what? I may have pre- pre- presumption. I may have certainty of expectations of how I think the kingdom should look, how I think the church should be responding in our culture today of how things should look and how things should be. Are we all ready, no matter where we're at in that, to lay down and repent of our expectations, of our presumptions, of our presumed certainty. I said at the beginning of this message that that the millennials were the largest number that were concerned about social cohesion in Canada. And I commend that, and I, I share their concern. But I also share the concern of cohesion or unity within the church. And, I, and I'm saddened by how polarized we've become. And I'm saddened by how so often Christians lead the way in being angry and shouting and and saying we've got to stand up for our rights. And all of these kinds of attitudes and heart postures just don't seem like the kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus taught that was about peace and reconciliation and the opposite of how the world fights. That's the kingdom. And so I share that and I'm just saying for all of us, no matter where we're at, and the vast differences that we have politically and hopes and dreams and everything else, can we repent and have humble hearts and be open in this series to the kingdom that Jesus will reveal to us through his word? Can we all be open to Jesus reshaping and maybe even overturning our understanding and living of kingdom? And then one more thing to call us to as we close. Can we be... Can we be forerunners like John? Can we be ones that want to prepare the way for Jesus? Can we be ones that will remove the obstacles away from people to come to Jesus? You know, it's sad how many negative stereotypes there are about Christians in our culture. And you know, some of them are unfair, but also many of them are true. And you know, we can choose to be offended by them, or we can just choose to realize They're true, and we can be forerunners. We can be ones that can remove the obstacles 
and point people to Jesus, not to have them stumble over the mistakes or the institutional things of the church that have turned people off, or not all of the the hypocritical ways that that Christians have, have been roadblocks to the gospel. We can be called to be forerunners, to prepare the way for Jesus, to remove those obstacles, to begin to live kingdom as we're going to learn. Kingdom as peacemakers, reconcilers, followers of Jesus, ones that usher in an upside down and unexpected new kingdom. That's our journey as we go through this series. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.